your Bibles out and, uh, and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And just kind of hold there because I'm going to talk about explore God for a second. As you know, we have been preparing over the last few weeks in this series called Conversations. We're talking about how Jesus had conversations with people. And uh, the Explore God initiative is something that's coming this fall. And you may have already seen some signs around the city, but uh, the Explore God initiative is a, a thing that is happening between 300 churches, over 300 churches gathering together, and it is a, a, a thing to help us as a church, to help us as God's people, to create conversation between the spiritually curious and the spiritually prepared. And so when you think about 300 churches all across the region of Austin coming together and getting training and being prepared, being intentional, thinking about how God might want to lead them to have conversations with people who don't know about Jesus, who don't know who he is, it's a really incredible thing. And so we're gonna use, they're going to use things like exploregod.com. Put that list up there, uh, Kate, if you can. Uh, exploregod.com is one of the things that, that this this initiative is working through its short films, interviews, uh, written materials. You can go on there and you can find all kinds of great stuff about uh, really hard questions. People have hard questions about God. And when they begin to explore him, we need to be armed with dealing with those questions. Uh, and so you can learn some stuff from there. And then uh, there's uh, billboards, TV, radio uh, ads encouraging people to explore God. And so it's really, it's really sort of unavoidable. It's, a, it's an opportunity. You'll see it. I saw a billboard on the way to church this morning. If you were coming on 290, going east, right before Mopac, you saw this huge billboard. It said, uh, hashtag explore God. And, uh, and so it's people are going to start seeing these signs and they're going to be curious about what it is. It's going to run all fall. It's being, uh, it's being um, uh, <laughs> bankrolled <laughs> by a foundation because it's a pretty expensive task but a found, called the E3 Foundation. And uh, these, these guys are pouring loads of money into this uh, initiative because it is a way of highlighting the need for spiritual conversation. Spiritual conversation in our city to kind of make it the norm. And so over 300 churches, 300 churches are coordinating together to do training and to encourage people to have spiritual conversations with their neighbors, their coworkers, for people who are, who are curious. And what that means is we're going we're gonna to make sure that we're as prepared as we can. That's kind of why we're going through this preview, this, this series called Conversations. And then uh, there's, a, there's also going to be, during the fall, a small group uh, discussion curriculum. And this curriculum can be used in any number of ways. It can be used for people who are just curious, don't know anything about God, but want to know more, want to talk about spiritual things. And it's, it's very open. And, uh, and so you, can, you could have a group at your house, or you could have a group at, at, um, at your workplace, on lunch, or there's any number of ways it can be used. It could also be used to help struggling Christians or new Christians, people who love God but don't really know how to answer the hard questions. A group of people could get together and, and discuss these questions and, and wrestle through it. Now, I, I, I want to tell you, I'm going to give you some distinctives of Explore God, because I want to... I wanna, help you understand what the expectations are. All right, number one, the, the, the expectation, the distinctive is that this is going to invite questions. We're, we're going to invite a lot more questions than are going to get settled. Right? Because the truth is, it doesn't matter who you are, what experience you've had, there are questions that seem too mysterious to answer about God. I don't believe that God can be sort of packaged neatly in a nice little box and we can sort of give people the formula for how everything works. I don't think that's a good description of Christianity. I don't think that's what Jesus shared when he shared what the good news of the kingdom was. I don't think that's how Paul describes it. But we want to invite people to answer questions because we want to create conversation. And one of the reasons we want to create conversation is because people don't talk with Christians about spiritual things often. Why don't you think they are willing to talk to Christians about spiritual things? Because they just think they're going to get an earful of just, I'm right and you're wrong. 
I don't know if you realize this, but you know, sometimes we have, we have a bad reputation out there of, of being too judgmental and too hypocritical, of being louder about what we're against than what we're for. And what Explore God is a chance for us to redefine the conversation. That the conversation should be about all of us who are seeking God and welcoming others into that conversation. That we're willing to let them we're willing to let them discover themselves. If you see this up here, we want to promote experiential learning and inspire self-discovery. There's, a, there's an experiential thing that people have to have in order to really know who God is. There is a self-discovery process that they have to engage in. It, they cannot just take your word for it. Actually coming to Christ, coming and surrendering your life can only happen by full permission of your own heart. If you force people to do it, it does, it's not Christianity. Christianity is about coming to Christ and surrendering, not being forced by anyone. So there's a self-discovery process. You have to lead people through that process. One of the, my favorite phrases is, I don't think that we should make people believe a certain thing and then become like we think they should become and then they can belong to our community. I think it should be the opposite. It should be that they should belong. They should be able to belong. They should be able to be part of our community, have conversation, wrestle through the issues. We can share our difficulties with them. We can share our struggles with them, our questions. They wrestle through it and they start believing because they're hanging out in the community of believers. They start believing the things that the scripture tells us. They start believing because they begin to experience God's presence and his spirit on their own, even if they don't know what it is. And then as they believe, they really start becoming who God wants them to be. I don't know about you, but this is a long process for me. I'm still becoming who God wants me to be. How about you? Yeah, so it's no different for them. So when my, when my kids were born into my family, guess what? They belonged to my family long before they actually believed the way I believe. I think that's how it should be with God's family is we should coach one another, we should help one another, we should wrestle. Listen, that makes it messy, no doubt about it, but I'm up for some mess in church, right? I'm up, for, I'm up for people's questions, and I'm up for walking with them as they wrestle through it. Now, people being mean, people being cruel, people calling each other names, I'm not for any of that, all right? People do that to you, you can go ahead and wave goodbye and tell them you're, you'll be back when they're ready for conversation. But, but there's something about this self-discovery that we have to be used by God to help people experience. Does that make sense? That's what Explore God's about. It is the role of the church to teach people that they belong and what they should believe and what they're becoming. But that happens over a long period of time. So let's use this initiative this weekend, and, or this weekend, this fall, is, uh, what, I'm, what I'm describing to you this weekend is really a, a whole fall campaign. It's going to be around for a while. You don't have to rush out and grab somebody by the throat and say, we need to have a conversation. No, it's, there's, a, there's a really nice process that's going to happen. People will notice it. They, 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 you can initiate conversation. They might initiate conversation. And you can use the website that has all kinds of great material on it. And so I want to start today with a, one of my favorite little videos uh, that's on the website. It's called uh, Science and Belief. Belief, and it's a, a, it's a testimony of a woman that was an atheist. So uh, let's watch this together. My name is Jennifer Fulweiler. I was a lifelong atheist, and I'm now a Christian. I write a blog called Conversion Diary. It's a chronicle of the ups and downs of what it's like to have faith after an entire life of being an atheist. I never believed in God, not even as a child. When my dad would come read books to me at night, I believe I was in fourth or fifth grade, and our nightly reading was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. <laughs> so I was very much raised on a diet of science and reason and evidence-based rational thought. You believe what you can prove. I believe that I have hands because I can see them. I believe in a black hole, even though I've never seen one, but you know, science can tell us about the way matter moves around it that we can observe. And so this very rational worldview always made sense to me on a fundamental level. Before I got to the point 
that I could really start researching faith with an open mind, something had to happen. And for me, that occurred after my first child was born. I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist materialist perspective, he is a collection of randomly evolved chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, that all the love that I feel for him, that it's all nothing more than chemical reactions in our brains. And I looked down at him and I realized that's not true. It's not the truth. I didn't know where to go from there, but that's what prompted me to start researching topics of spirituality. I got my books about Buddhism and, you know, and about every religion except for Christianity, basically. I assumed that anything could be true except for Christianity. And my husband, who considered himself a non-practicing Christian, said, you might want to start with the one major world religion whose founder claimed to be God. After all, that's a really easy claim to disprove if it's not true. And I thought, well, that's a fair point. I was such a through and through atheist that I have to admit, I was ignorant of all these great Christian thinkers. What about Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> what about Augustine? What about Descartes? I mean, all of these great thinkers throughout history were not only theists, but Christians. And I was really surprised when I actually found these very intellectually rigorous books where people talked about their faith from a place of reason and not a place of emotion. And when I looked at evidence like that on the whole, I started to think something explosive, something world-changing happened in first century Palestine. You have this guy named Jesus who comes from a lower class region, gains a bunch of lower class followers, and ends up being executed by the Romans. And yet in droves, you see thousands and thousands of Jews giving up these traditions that they had held dear for thousands of years. And the people who joined in on this new religion, there was no benefit for them. It was a persecuted religion. People who joined this religion didn't tend to work out too well. They tended to lose social status and often face death. But I wasn't yet you know, convinced and, and ready to become a Christian. And so I started a blog. I just threw out every hard question I could think of. I just put it all out there on the blog. And as I would watch the atheists and the Christians go back and forth and debate, I realized we atheists, we don't have the lock on reason that I thought we did. But what I saw with the Christians was they had that too. They had all the knowledge of science and material world that, that we atheists did but yet they had the total picture of the human experience of love and triumph and hope and you know they could articulate that in a way that the atheists couldn't it wasn't until after i had made the intellectual decision to become a christian that i think i finally believed it in my heart when I set my pride aside and said, okay, I feel like I'm talking to myself, but Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to know you, even though I don't know how to go about doing that. This peace entered my life, this joy, the way my whole being was transformed. There was just no question that this is somebody real. I think that not only am I more alive uh, now that I'm a Christian, but I'm so much more intellectually alive. Finally, nothing is off limits. I can ask questions about science, but I can also ask questions about the spiritual world, and I'm free to really seek the truth. Wow. What do you think of that? What I love about her testimony is she describes what happened to her in her process of uh, being curious and then asking questions and then people answering those questions and then wrestling through it. And something came alive in her. Something spoke to her beyond even her reason or her own scientific uh, uh, you know, uh, background or her, her own way of thinking and way of proving. And I, I, I love that. And I think that's what was happening in John chapter 4 with Jesus.
So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, let's, let's pick up the story here. Because Jesus has initiated a question to this woman at the well. And he said, would you give me something to drink? And then she begins to respond to him. She's shocked that he has violated some cultural protocol, men speaking to women in the middle of the day, uh, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan, uh, offering something that, that he makes her more curious than she was when she came there. He, he starts reading her mail. He starts directing the conversation to a, in a more personal way to what was happening in her life. And he begins to say, you know, I, I know you've been really hurt and you've had several husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband and that's, that's shameful and difficult for you. And she, he, 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 he gets the conversation to this very personal level of experience. And let me just tell you that there is no, there is no real work that is done until you get to a personal level of conversation. You can argue about theology and you can argue about ideas and you can argue about all these premises and uh, you can argue about the scripture, but when you get to the moment of crisis in a person's life, that is where something very special happens. It's where I think the work of God really begins to be shown and demonstrated in a person's life. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk to you today a little bit about how Jesus describes the new way that people are going to experience God. Because this woman, as we pick up the story, in John chapter 4, verse 19, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He says that because the Samaritans had their own modified Torah. They didn't have the whole thing when they were taken into captivity. They, some of it had been lost. They had intermarried with the people groups that they'd been captured by. They, they, weren't, they were known as half-breeds by the, the Jewish people. The, the, the Jews were the pure line, and, and they had the whole Torah and the temple worship in Jerusalem, but the, but the Samaritans did not, and they'd modified their worship in, a, in such a way, even though as they came back from captivity in Babylon, they... they began to worship the true and living God, but they didn't have the whole picture. And so, so she's saying, what is up with these people who don't have the whole picture and people who think they do have the whole picture? And what's really happening here? And how do you really worship? And then Jesus says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I want you to notice here that Jesus is describing the kind of worshipers. There are worshipers that God is not seeking. There are bad kinds of worshipers and good kinds of worshipers. There are people who worship according to what God is doing in the earth and people who worship in a way that is not necessarily pleasing to him or not, not necessarily full of understanding. He says that the kind of worship the Father is seeking is worship in spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. I want you to say that phrase with me. God is spirit. Say it one more time. God is spirit. There is something spiritual here that Jesus is trying to convey. He is ready to convey something to this woman in answer to her question. Now, she's saying, I understand the law says this, and I understand that these people worship in this city, and I understand these rituals, but I, I don't get it. Tell me what's real. I think she said it out of desperation. I think she said it out of the mess of her life, and then Jesus said, look, a time is coming, and is now here, when you're not going to worship like you did before, you're not going to 
do the things you did before in order to worship God. It's going to change. It's going to be different. The way you viewed God in the past is not the way he is going to interact with you in the future. Because in this day, what's going to happen is you're going to witness God as spirit. Some Bible scholars believe that in this little passage, what Jesus is talking about is the Trinity. Is he's actually saying that there is a Holy Spirit dynamic that's coming. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm a Trinitarian. Good word to know and say. Trinitarian. Most people don't care what the word Trinitarian means, but what it means is God is three in one. It is a mystery. It is difficult sometimes to understand. It is, it is not necessarily clear, but you see in the Bible, but you see it all over the scriptures. Here Jesus is talking about his Father and what he's seeking, and then he's articulating how the Holy Spirit's going to be involved in worship. How the Holy Spirit's going to be involved in worship. If you look at the, I have a couple of translations here. He's, uh, good, the Good News Translation, here's what it says in, in John 4, 23. It says, but the time is coming and is already here when the power of God's Spirit, by the power of God's Spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is, offering him the true worship that he wants. God is Spirit, and only by the power of his Spirit can people worship him as he really is. Now, you have to understand what Jesus is saying here. It's foreign to her. But while he's saying it, something's happening to her on the inside. Something is burning on the inside of her heart as Jesus begins to describe the way of the Spirit, the way of God's Spirit and how he's going to work, that it is, it is not ritualistic. It is not something that can just be done with pure obedience, the Pharisees and the religious leaders always beating up on Jesus about pure obedience and Jesus always responding to them saying, okay, you obey everything the law says, but your hearts are far from him. Your hearts are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. It looks nice on the outside, but it looks bad on the inside. You know what Jesus was forecasting? You know what he was saying? Is there's going to be something that God does to change the inside of a person. And it's going to be spiritual. Look at what the message version says. I love Eugene Peterson. He's the writer of this uh, translation. He says, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father's out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. Don't you love that phrase? People who just could come to God just like they are. You know, sometimes we think that we ought to clean ourselves up before we come to God, but that's, that's like backwards. That's like saying, uh, you know, I really need to get clean so I can go take a bath. It is the coming to God. It is the coming to worship God. It is the offering of yourself that starts the cleanup. It's the surrendering to him. Here's what he says. God is seeking, or sorry, God is sheer being itself, is what Eugene says. God is sheer being itself, spirit. What he's, he's saying here, he is like the origination of all being. He is spirit. And those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. God is looking for people who will be honest about themselves and willing to bring their true selves, everything, to him and allow his truth to begin to shape their lives by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is describing a relationship where God's Spirit is inhabiting them, is, is on the inside of them. That's what he's describing to this woman. He's describing a people who have something unique. I don't know. Have you ever watched the show The X Factor? X Factor? It's not a very good show. Simon Cowell uh, started it. And... Uh, and he spun it off of American Idol. But it's a, it's a competition, a, a singing competition, essentially. And uh, singing competitions are all the rage. You know, we've, we, had, we had a singing competition in Austin yesterday. Uh, it was called The Voice. I don't know if you've ever heard of The Voice. All right, so The Voice, I, I actually went, and my son Taylor uh, auditioned uh, for The Voice. He went through the process. Yeah, woo! Okay, so, so we went. I stood in line with him forever. 
I, I mean, it was, so, it was 104 yesterday. I'm standing outside, and we're just like, you know, sweating. And then we finally make it inside where the air conditioning is. And they take you, you know, to a giant room, like, a, like some kind of airline hangar down in the bowels of the convention center, Austin Convention Center. And they take you down there, and, uh, and, and you sit in these, in these tight little rows, like 20 rows deep and like 15 across. And you just sit in these huge sections waiting for your turn. You're sitting right next to people you don't know, and it's, it's very weird and awkward. And then they take you to a smaller room where you sit to, next to more people, and then to a little even smaller room where the actual audition happens. And so we ended up going through the whole process, get to this small room. I'm there with Taylor. I sit in the back of the room. Taylor's there, and they have 10, 10 people and a producer sitting at the front, and they stand on the tape, and they start singing. Well, the reason I'm creating this picture for you is because this is what the X factor is. Like when they're singing, right? Like they, they start singing and I'm sitting there and I can hear it. And you could tell who can and who can't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like some people have it. Some people got it and some people don't. I so I mean, and you and what's weird is you can tell immediately. You don't have to be a musician. You could they, they open their mouth within five seconds. I the whole time I'm listening to these ten people. You know I'm the I'm the parent in the back of the room. There's one other mom there who was with a minor, and and so they they stand up and as soon as it comes out of their mouth, I'm like, nope. <laughs> no, uh, uh-uh. uh, and got it. Sit down. I so wanted to say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> nah. It was so funny um, as they sang one by one, and then there's a few that have it. Taylor Parsley is one who has it. <laughs> he started singing, and it's like the whole room just goes. Everybody, you could tell those people sitting there. He starts singing, everybody goes. Something about that kind of God-given talent. I wish I could tell you that I taught him everything I know. But he has a God-given talent. It's something special on the inside of him that makes everything different. That makes everything unique. And I, I, think, he, I think Christians, I think believers have an extra it factor. I think, I, I actually, when I listen to music across the spectrum of our culture, I think I hear people who have an anointing or have a gift from God. It is anointed. It has, you can sense that it's truly spiritual. They're just using it for the wrong spirit. They're just using it in the wrong way. And so... So I looked up the word X-factor and what it means. X-factor means some advantageous quality that someone or something is attributed to have, a quality that is regarded as mysterious and difficult to describe or isolate. It's a mysterious quality. This is the quality Jesus is talking about, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit possessing people. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, whether you know it or not, you are possessed You're possessed by a spirit, but his name is holy. There are many people possessed by all kinds of things. The Holy Spirit has come to possess us. Now, here's what this means. In the Trinitarian view, the Father is sitting on his throne in heaven, and he's looking across the landscape of the universe, the landscape of history. He's he is the beginning and he is the end. He sees it. He sees it all and he, and he orchestrates the affairs of men. And then in the middle of history, Jesus comes down and, and comes as the son of God. Jesus, who was from the beginning, who was with God, John 1 says, in the beginning, who was God in the beginning, 
with God. And so he comes down in human flesh, lives 33 years, communicates God's love and mercy. He does miracles. He makes people's lives better. And then he returns after being resurrected from the dead, taking the sacrificial position, the servant's humble position of giving his life for you and for me, takes our sin upon himself, is resurrected to life after he gives his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit of the Holy Spirit then is sent to the earth by Jesus. You know what he said? He said he wanted to send us a counselor, an advocate, one who would be with us. And I think this is so important as we look at it. I want you to turn in your Bible to John 16. John 16, and I want you to see this description of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put up on the, uh, I'm going to read while you're turning there, John 16, verse uh, 7, but I'm going to read Romans 8 while you're turning there. Here's what, here's what Paul said about how the Spirit lives in us. It says, and Christ lives within you. So Christ lives in us. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Now some of you are a little bit nervous because I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. Because what you're, you've just heard me say that God wants to possess us. <laughs> you, what you, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, I think we really have to lay down our, our filters that we've absorbed over the years. Things that we've seen people say about the Holy Spirit. Thing, the ways that people worship. Jesus here is talking about the way that people worship. As Christians, we often want to put God in the box of our style of church or way of worshiping that suits our tastes. Our secular culture does this as well when they take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, and a dose of pop psychology, a pinch of what they believe, and they mix it all together and create their own personal experience, right? In America, we call this Oprah. But the Christian faith is a reasoned faith. I'm not saying that we, don't, we shouldn't study. We should study. We should, be, we should be people who study the scriptures to show ourselves approved. That's what Paul said to Timothy. But I don't think we can lean on our learning because there's something else going on here. There's an X factor that we all have to tap into as we're having conversations with people about who God is. Look at what John 16, 7 is. You're right there. Look at what it says. It says, but very truly I tell you, Jesus said, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the counselor, the helper, some translations say, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove to the world, he will prove the world to be wrong to be in the wrong about sin. That's how the NIV puts it. He says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So what the Holy Spirit does is he helps people figure out what's wrong and what's right. Look at what Jesus says. He says, about sin because people do not believe in me. What he's saying here is, the Holy Spirit is the one that help people understand that they're sinners and they need Jesus. Hey, I don't know if you've heard or not, but Jesus took care of every sin that I've ever committed or ever will commit, and he gives me life in freedom if I surrender myself to him. This is the, this is the good news. This is the message. So the Holy Spirit is, is working. He's proving people wrong about sin. It doesn't have to destroy you. Number, verse 10, he's, he's talking to people about righteousness. Because I am going to my Father, Jesus said, where you can see me no longer. Righteousness is being right with God, being in right standing with God. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us understand that we don't have to live under guilt, shame, condemnation, failure. We can be right with God, and the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us to that because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he has made intercession for us. Verse 11 says, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the Holy Spirit's involved in a lot of the conversation here. He's involved in convincing people that the enemy is defeated and that judgment will happen, but that you don't have to suffer under the penalty of judgment. The judgment was designed for the devil and his demons.
It's, it's not designed for you. Jesus is talking about the role of the Holy Spirit and how it works. Verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I always feel like God says that to me. I have a lot more to say to you, but you can't handle it. Verse 13, but when, he, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is what Jesus is talking about to this woman as he describes how the Spirit is going to work in us. That Jesus is, is, is speaking and communicating through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is only saying what the Father says and the Holy Spirit is only saying what glorifies Jesus. If you look at verse 14, I want you to take your pen and I want you to underline that little phrase. He will glorify me. He will glorify me. You know why that phrase is important? Because this is often the distinguishing factor between the spirit you're talking about, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit the world is talking about that they're tapped into. I was sitting by someone in this line yesterday, and she was reading a book. She pulled out her little book because we had lots of time to sit around, and we had a little discussion because her book was called Something like tapping into the divine universe. It was all spiritual stuff. It was all, it was very good language as I read some of it and we talked a little bit about it and about love and, and all this stuff. But here's the thing here's the thing that differentiates Christians from people who are trying to connect to a universal spirit. And it is this. That the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit illuminates what Jesus has done. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus and his power and his work. And so as you do that, as you engage in people's conversation, there's going to be overlap. And they're going to be like, oh, we believe the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, we believe. God's like spirit and it's really awesome. Yeah, yes. Okay, you may have to say, yeah, I don't know about that. I do believe there is a spirit, but the, the difference here is that Jesus sent the spirit, the Holy Spirit, to us to live in us. And he begins to testify and glorify Jesus. Look at what Look at what else Jesus said in John 14. I'll just throw it up on the screen. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He reminds you of everything Jesus already said. He reminds you of everything Jesus already said. Now, am I saying you don't have to study? No, you need to study and use your own brain. Got to have the conversation with them, folks. So you need to be smart enough to have the conversation which means you need to study your Bible, you need to learn, and, and you need to explore. But, but listen, it is the Holy Spirit that often just speaks to you. The Holy Spirit leads us into the truth and reminds us of what Jesus said. We don't have to remember everything Jesus said because the Holy Spirit is our reminder. You know you're going to have a conversation with your neighbor about, about what they're experiencing? You can ask the Holy Spirit to remind you. This kind of indwelling of the Spirit of God is what authentic Christianity is really about. In fact, Jesus says this dynamic is so important, so compelling that it nourishes him. Go back to John 4. John 4. And you will pick it up again in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They could not believe that he was violating all this protocol, all these cultural norms. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? They were all afraid of him. All right, then, no, verse 28, notice this. If you have your pen, underline this line. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? 
<laughs> like the disciples, they don't have the X factor yet. <laughs> you know, it's really true. They get him later, but, but they don't have him yet. So they're, they're sort of like hard-headed. They don't really get it because somebody else has brought in some food. And look what Jesus says in verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he starts talking about the harvest. Do not say four more months than the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. This, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I want to talk about a few things in this little passage. The first thing I want to say is the Holy Spirit makes things easier, not harder. Jesus starts, start, starts talking about the harvest and he starts talking about how the, the sower and the reaper are working together and the Holy Spirit is working through each of them and the Holy Spirit makes something happen when you didn't think it could happen. He prepares the way. I have said it to many, many pastors here in town as I've been here in Austin the last three years, because I feel like God has been doing something here in Austin for many, many years. There are so many pastors who have tilled the soil of this hard ground, and they've prayed over this city, and I've seen it, and I've experienced it, and I just showed up. I just showed up, and it seems like there was a, a church. We said, hey, we're starting a church, and people started coming to Christ. Boom. People who didn't like church started showing up in a movie theater hoping it wouldn't be anything like they'd ever been to before. And we tried to make sure it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, why would people come to church in a movie theater? I wonder if it could be because the Holy Spirit's been at work through people over many years, saturating the soil, and the work of God is coming and making it easy for you and me to have these conversations. Jesus says that's how it works. And then he's, if you back up, he, he says a little bit about what nourishes him. He tells the disciples, it is, it is my food to do the will of my Father. It is my food to function like this. this is what, what I'm doing talking to this woman, what I'm doing allowing the Spirit to lead me and guide me, that's what I live for. What I live for is letting the Holy Spirit speak through me to a woman who is in desperate need. That's what he's saying. I wonder if we could allow the Holy Spirit to come in and to saturate us and to overtake us and to lead us. Jesus is saying that he is nourished and fulfilled by something beyond physical food or drink. Jesus is saying that he is nourished beyond something that is physical. I want you to notice that the same thing is happening to Jesus is happening to the woman as she's talking to Jesus. Look at what happens. She begins to discover living water, which is why she leaves her jar. She left the jar. She came in the middle of the day when she wasn't necessarily supposed to be there. Women come in the morning or they come in the evening. There's a whole community of women who would share and talk together. She avoids all that because she's ashamed. She avoids all that because she is under pressure and, and in a desperate state. She comes here looking for water and then leaves her jar because she's found something better than physical water. Her thirst... It's the same thing Jesus is saying. Her thirst has, is starting to be quenched. Jesus doesn't need to eat physical food because his food is letting the Holy Spirit use him and doing the work that his father sent him to do. She's saying, I don't need to get this water. I'm going to rely on the spring that bubbles up into living water. She doesn't even know exactly what that means yet. She's all over town saying, I met a guy who told me everything I ever knew. Or I ever did. 
I'm talking to a guy who tells me everything I ever did. Come out and see him. She doesn't even barely know, but she knows there is something going on on the inside that's freeing her from her history, that's freeing her from her shame. This is the work of the Spirit. So, what, so, so look, physical needs, when we, sorry, when we discover living water, our worries over natural water tend to subside. That's probably true for you too. Sometimes I'll talk to a person and they'll come to me for pastoral counseling. They're going through a very hard time in their life and we'll talk for a little while. And then somewhere in the conversation, I'll say something like this. So have you been, uh, have you been reading your Bible or praying at all? No. <laughs> have you been uh, to church Hanging out with other, no, no, I'm just so, I'm so consumed, I'm so over. It's like they do everything to keep the spirit from flowing through them. <laughs> it's like they're so consumed with the physical desires that they've lost the focus of who possesses them. Physical needs and crises often precede a spiritual rebirth. It is often a crisis of physical issues or financial issues or a relationship that's broken down that precedes a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual reconnection. Look at what Romans 8, 5, and 6 says. It says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Do you see this? Do you see it's on the, it's on the, it's on the screen? Those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Yes, the Holy Spirit is into mind control. When the Holy Spirit is consuming your thoughts, consuming your heart, Instead of focusing on the things that you worry about or are concerned about, you start thinking about the things that Jesus is doing. When our spiritual lives become the central driving force of our existence, our natural worldly desires don't occupy the focus of our attention. And what I want to suggest to you today is that some of you have lost your focus. Some of us lose our focus and, and the Holy Spirit is inhabiting you, but you're not paying attention to him. You're not allowing him to lead you. And if you close your eyes and just bow your heads right now, I just want you to think for a moment. Could you tap into that still small voice of the Holy Spirit? He's the one who's going to speak through you. He's the one who's, who's going to give you ideas about your neighbor and ways you can invest in them or ways you can speak to them as long as you're not so consumed with your own physical needs that you can't hear him. How do we surrender control to the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a little verse, and I just want you to listen to it with your eyes closed. Just, just listen to it. Ephesians chapter 4. It's a fantastic passage. And it kind of describes for us how we surrender control. Here's what it says. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 
as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The first thing you got to settle is that Jesus really loves you and he's, his life has been given for you. And once you, 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 most of you believe that, but suddenly this life, the world, the finances, the relationships, the struggles, the career has taken your attention and now you're frustrated, you're angry, you're weary, you're, you, you've fallen into sin, you still believe in Jesus, but there's, there's things that have gripped, they've kind of gotten a hold of you, chains that have wrapped around you. Could I encourage you today to confess and repent of your sins, to forgive anyone who's hurt you because, because you're just as guilty as they. Forgive them, let them go. Ask God to fill you and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and be willing to express your gratitude to him. Be willing to open up your heart to him for him to fill you today. Let him fill you with the spirit, the spirit of God. Don't put him in a little box. Let him go beyond the box and beyond the religion and beyond what you've known and let him speak to you and let him begin to build this indwelling relationship with you. If you're here this morning and you want to pray this prayer, you want to, you, you want to say to me, Pastor Ross, I, I really want to give my life to God again. I, I need what you're describing. I, I don't know that I'm living in this. I, I'm, not, I'm not functioning in this. I wonder if you would just pray this prayer with me, maybe under your breath. Maybe you just pray it along with me. Ask the Holy Spirit to come in. I'm going to lead everyone across this auditorium, and I just want you to eyes closed, Just let, let your heart speak to God. So we say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done, taking my place, dying for my sin, being buried and then resurrected to life by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for that. But forgive me, Lord. Forgive me because of what Christ has done for doing my own thing, going my own way, being obsessed with my own thoughts and my own cares and concerns, being isolated and obsessed with my own stuff instead of thinking about others and thinking about you. Forgive me for my foolishness and my own pride. And I choose you today. I humble myself again. I come home to you. Give me a new start. Give me a fresh start today. Help me. Help me to live with the Spirit of God living in me. Help me to operate surrendered to the Holy Spirit that lives in me. Help me, Lord Jesus, to yield when I hear the Spirit's voice. Help me to launch out in faith when the Spirit of God whispers to me to talk to that neighbor or to share something with that coworker. So, Lord, take over. Holy Spirit, come and dwell in us. Come and dwell in us. We thank you for this. We thank you for this and we receive it now. We receive it now.